Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians as we continue to work our way through this wonderful epistle, the book of Ephesians. Now, when we were last in this, in this book, we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 19 in some depth and detail. That was on Memorial Day weekend. We did something else for Communion Sunday. But if you were not here, I urge you to go back and, and, uh, and listen to that and catch up. We will be taking into consideration verses 11 through 19, but also verses 19 through 22 as a unit this morning as we try and see what the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, has written and is being communicated by the Holy Spirit to us. So we will begin reading at chapter 2, verse 11, but before reading, let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come as children who are in need of your word. We long for your word. Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And you have given to us your word without error, the Bible. We need to be under the means of grace. You grant to us persevering grace as we hear the word and as we come to the table of the Lord, as we worship and pray together. And we ask that you will strengthen us and indeed that we will be thrilled with the truth that is here. We thank you that there is absolute truth and that it is revealed in your word. But Father, we also pray that uh, those who may be with us today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will hear the gospel and that you might save them from their sins as you have so many here. And we pray that we will all leave with a deeper knowledge of what Christ has done for us and what it means to be a part of his church. And these things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom alone we can be saved. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into an holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a temple 
a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I hope that as you are moving along in the book of Ephesians, you are grasping better your position in Christ, what it means that you are in union with Christ, and what your position in Him is all about. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is stressing our union with Christ, our position in Him. Now remember, in Christ or its equivalent, in Christ or its equivalent, will be found 35 times in the book of Ephesians. Very obviously, the Apostle Paul is stressing our union with Christ and is stressing our position in Him. Paul does not begin with the application of truth in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are doctrine. The first three chapters are given over to opening up what it means that we are in union with Christ. In these first three chapters, he wants us to understand our position in Christ. Then, in chapter 4, he will be ready to make application. And so we are in Christ, elected, adopted, redeemed, sealed, made alive. And now we come to these verses, which also stress our position in Christ. What does he tell us? Paul shows us our position in Christ in six different ways in the passage before us. The first is this, you are reconciled through Christ's blood. You are reconciled. You are made near in Christ's blood who once were far off. The hostility, Paul says, has been killed. You are no longer enemies with God and Jew and Gentile who believe in Christ are one in Christ, in union with Christ himself, who is our peace. He did not simply make peace for us. He is our peace in whom we put our trust. We read in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now this term, reconcile, Apokatalasso in this passage, katalasso is the is the, the, the verb. Katalasso has built into it the idea of exchange. The great Bauer lexicon uh, says it means exchange one thing for another, the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Now this is what God has done through the cross. Uh, He has exchanged hostility for a friendly relationship. The exchange of relationship is profound indeed when we consider that behind it is the great exchange. Our guilt was imputed to Christ, legally transferred to Christ when he suffered on the cross. His perfect righteousness is imputed, transferred legally to all who believe. Just as we saw last week as we were working through Leviticus 16 for our communion Sunday and Aaron prayed over the scapegoat placing symbolically the sins of the people upon the scapegoat who went off into the horizon never to be seen again. So the great exchange has taken place. My sin upon Christ, his righteousness upon me. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in Galatians 3.13, we are told that Christ was made a curse for us. 
As God's minister preaches the message of reconciliation, Christ himself is the one ultimately preaching. For he says in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. How did he do that? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of peace. As the word of God is proclaimed, Christ himself is the one ultimately proclaiming through his word his peace, the reconciliation that he has bought by his own shed blood. Consequently, the emphasis of the Apostle Paul in these verses is upon our position in Christ. We are those who now are at peace with God. We are reconciled who once were far, far from Him in our sin. But secondly, our position is underscored by this great word access that we read in verse 18. Access. For through Him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now again, if you'll forgive me, this word prosagoge that is used here, translated access, means a way of approach. But the verb upon which it is based, prosago, means to enter into someone's presence. It means really to introduce Uh, For example, in 1 Peter 3.18, the word is used this way, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Bring us to God, or introduce us to God, prosago. We then have access, Christ has introduced you, believer, He has introduced you to the Father. Now contrast that with what we read in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, through the blood of Jesus, you have been introduced to the Father, and you have free access to Him. Do you remember how it's put in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it is underscored in this marvelous way. In verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So do you see? We have an introduction through Jesus to the Father. We have acceptance through Him. We have free access to the holy God of the universe. The Father is not looking for something in us to condemn us. He has accepted us. Christ the Son has introduced us in union with Himself so that legally speaking when He sees us, He sees His Son in whom we have union. 
Christ the Son has done this. He has led us to the Father. Through his precious blood we have access. And this means that all of the wrath has been spent. And there is therefore now no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. That all the penalty has been paid once for all and you owe it no more. Otherwise we could not, we dare not come into the presence of the holy God. No fellowship would be possible, but now we have access. And so we are reconciled, and because of that reconciliation, Paul underscores our position as those who now have free and complete and bold access to the Father. Sibs the Puritan put it this way, We may, with a heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ, now ascend into heaven, answer all objections, and triumph against all enemies. We may go boldly to God and demand the performance of his promises. All because of what Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross and opened the way of access for you and for me. But there's another way in which Paul underscores our position in this passage. He says that we are fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now this answers to the xenoi of verse 12, the idea of our being alienated and strangers. Paul uses two words here in verse 19, xenoi and paroikoi, which denoted resident aliens in the ancient world. Resident aliens in a Greek or a Roman city were considered second-class citizens. Well, were Gentile Christians second-class citizens in the church? No. Viewing the church as a city with citizens, Paul says that Gentiles who once were excluded are not second-class citizens, but you, through faith in Christ, are full citizens. There are no second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. And so he uses also the term saints in this verse, as he did in chapter 1, verse 1, which you will recall means those who have been set apart. You are set apart. You are citizens and saints. Once the Gentiles had no place among God's people, with few exceptions, but Paul says in Romans 9, 25 through 26, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now Paul in that passage is citing Hosea 2.23 and it's referenced by Peter in 1 Peter 2.10. His point is this, you who once were excluded now are the people of God. You, that's us, we were those Gentiles, you once were not the people of God. You Gentiles have now been reconciled to God You have been given access, and you are made citizens. Are you grateful? Is this just something you're hearing, or are you really grateful? (laughs) You were the Gentiles that were excluded. You are now the citizens of whom Paul speaks, and the saints. 
And so we are fellow citizens. This is primarily heavenly. Paul tells us in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And our prime duty in life is loyalty to the Lord who has made us to be citizens of the heavenly city. So again, Paul underscores your position. You are fellow citizens with the saints. But that's not all. Fourthly, the apostle underscores our position by saying you are members of God's household. Now look again here in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now in verses 19 through 22, Paul uses five words that have oikos, oikos as a part of the word. That is the word that means house in the Greek New Testament. So household, house is a building, temple, these are the images that are racing through Paul's fertile mind. And in verse 19, he's viewing the church as God's household. The good news is that you are, through Christ, members of God's household, not excluded, not even servants. Hebrews 3.6 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Stuart Custer makes this comment, the household in the ancient world was much lar- a much larger unit than most modern households. It regularly included three generations of a family and numerous servants and slaves. Caesar's household was an extreme example. The household of God includes the redeemed saints of all ages. Eddie, who is another commentator, emphasizes that these members of the household are not guests here today and away tomorrow. They have access to him, enjoy his love, and hold daily and delightful fellowship not only with him but with one another. Well, do you begin to understand what it means that you are members of God's household? That you're not here today, gone tomorrow, you have access to Him, you enjoy His love, hold daily and delightful fellowship with God the Father and with one another. Do you value this? And so Paul the Apostle stresses the position of you believers in Jesus as you are members of God's household. Well, you say, pastor, it's just too much. Well, there's more. The fifth way in which the Apostle Paul underscores our position in Christ is to say that you are an integral part of God's building that he is building. Using an architectural image, verses 20 through 22. Let's read them again. Members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the Lord is constructing a building in this age in which we live as he brings men and women and children to himself and to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Christ, he says, is the cornerstone, and this is a reference to Isaiah 28, 16. The cornerstone, you might recall, in buildings, and this was before there were steel structures, the cornerstone makes the foundation sure. It will determine the lay of the walls. It will support the superstructure. Custer again says, 
In the days before the invention of steel, a large building could be constructed only by the use of massive cornerstones large enough to bear the weight of two walls. Every foundation stone is important, but the cornerstone was absolutely crucial. It is a fitting image to set forth the crucial importance of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. He is the cornerstone of the building that God is building. And then it tells us the apostles and prophets are the foundation or lay the foundation. We speak of apostolicity of the church, meaning the truth of God's word is at the foundation. Every attribute of the church, by the way, every attribute of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic, every attribute, everyone is found in this passage. I challenge you to go home and over the dinner table find them together. They're all here. But here we underscore apostolicity. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the foundation laid, the cornerstone. We then are called to love the truth and uncompromisingly and tenaciously hold it. What does apostolicity mean? It means that we're built on divine revelation. The apostles and prophets. The divine word of God. And to this he adds a biological image to the architectural because he says in verse 21 that the church is a living organism that grows. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into an holy temple in the Lord. You know, people of God, we're very, very grateful to you for the time that we were able to spend in York with our son Evan. Evan is uh, an architectural historian, and uh, to be able to spend that time with him was primary, but it also was a wonderful thing to be able to see the various buildings, and especially churches, through the eyes of an architectural historian. And to go into York Minster, the great cathedral in York, and to have things explained to us that otherwise we would not have known, and that few people would, I think. One of the things that impressed us about that great cathedral is that you can see how it has been built in accretions. In other words, it wasn't just built and there it was, but it was built over centuries. And many of the buildings in York are that way. It's an ancient medieval city with Roman foundations. So you can actually look at foundations and you can see, well, this down here was Roman and this was medieval and so forth. So there are accretions. One of the things about the cathedral that was so impressive to us is that there are stonemasons who even now are cutting stones to replace the stones that have worn, and they're cutting them in the old medieval fashion, and they're replacing these stones. And so in a certain sense, you can say that that great cathedral is a living building, couldn't you? Because it's still being built. It's still being repaired. It's still, stones are still being added, but they're still stones. That's not true of God's building. The stones placed in God's building, 1 Peter 2.5 tells us, are living stones. God saves a sinner and places him in his building just where he wants that person. And he is ever increasing its membership through faith in Jesus Christ. You are an integral part of God's building that God is building. And these are not stones that will worn out and need replacing These are stones that are living stones that once placed in will always be there. Keep your finger here, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And notice how Peter uses this 
this image in 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 8. I'm convinced, by the way, that Peter was very influenced by Paul, and you can see it in many places in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 8, God says to us, As you come to him, a living stone, this is Christ, if you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. One old writer compares the stones quarried for Solomon's temple. The stones were cut and shaped, and then they were brought to the site, and they were put together without the sound of a hammer. So he said, Today, no one can hear a sound as a living stone is fitted into the temple of God, but God, by the Holy Ghost, is quarrying out those living stones from the depths of sin, and He is lifting them up by His mighty power and building them upon Christ, the great foundation. View the vast building, see it rise, the work how great, the plan how wise. Nor can that faith be overthrown that rests upon the living stone. All through the world the Lord is finding these needy sinners, these stones, and making them living stones, and He is building His church. And He found you, and He made you alive, and He incorporates you into this building that he is erecting if you are a believer in Jesus. And so once again, Paul wants us to see our position. We are integral parts of the building that God is building. But now the Apostle Paul's very active mind sees this building not simply as a building, but as a temple, and not only a temple, but a sanctuary. And that leads us to the sixth way in which we see our position in Christ in this text. The sixth way is this, you are God's sanctuary, which is really the pinnacle of his thought here. It's very important. The Apostle Paul uses temple imagery. But verse 21, look at it again, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 21 does not use the typical word for temple, hieron. It uses the word naas. It's translated here temple. Perhaps better could be translated sanctuary. The church is God's temple, yes, but naas includes the innermost sanctuary. It includes the holy of holies. Now remember the tabernacle in the temple. The front hall, the congregation could gather, the middle section, the priests only, but the most holy place, only the high priest could enter once per year on the Day of Atonement. You are there. You are in that most holy place through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are God's sanctuary. Hieron, temple, includes the temple enclosures, outer courts, and other buildings, but Naas, 
I went to Archbishop Trench's Synonyms of the Greek New Testament. Naos, he says, is the proper habitation of God, especially the most holy place. Just as God indwelt his tabernacle in the wilderness, as we heard from Exodus 40 this morning, and just as he indwelt the temple in Jerusalem, as you can find in 1 Kings 8, so now he indwells his church as a sanctuary composed of all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, positionally perfect in Christ. Verse 21 says, you are fitly joined together. Remember, this is a day in which there would not have been the use of of mortar in these buildings. The buildings were cut to fit. You are cut to fit together into the sanctuary that God himself has designed and is building. All of the parts fit together so that in the end of the age, according to Revelation 26, 16, the whole city is a holy of holies. So that's your position. You are God's temple. You are his sanctuary. You are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. The Shekinah glory of God that fell upon the temple and tabernacle is now indwelling you as a believer in Christ, us as a congregation, and all who are truly in the church of Jesus Christ by faith. So the pinnacle of Paul's thought here is that you are God's sanctuary. That is your position. Now, a passing comment, no charge for this. It's a popular view still, you hear it a lot, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and sacrifices will be reinstituted based on an interpretation of Ezekiel's temple in the latter part of the book of Ezekiel. I cannot agree with that view. Ezekiel's temple should be viewed as an idealized picture of the kingdom of God. The blood of Jesus has been shed. There is no need for reinstituting sacrifices. This would dishonor the final sacrifice of Christ. The church is the temple that replaces the old temple on earth. Do not look for another. Now, in those six ways... The Apostle Paul is underscoring your position in Christ. And though I've made some application as we've gone along, and frankly, we could make a zillion applications, let me make a couple. A couple of final thoughts for us. First of all, people of God, when you hear these things, are you impressed with your privileges? Are you? The privilege of being a part of God's sanctuary, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Do you see the church as the glorious body of Christ, not because of us, but because of the Lord who bought us, and because of the Spirit who indwells us, and that despite our failings, we should view the church ultimately in terms of our union with Christ and the Spirit who indwells us. Do you realize what a privilege it is to be a part of the church of God? Yes, in its local manifestation. And then that brings me to say, secondly, here are the privileges. 
But do you also see the responsibilities that come with this privilege? The church and her members are temples indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6 so that I may remind you of this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. First Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your physical body is by means of Christ's redemption and the Holy Spirit who indwells you, the way in which you show your love and obedience to God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. A passage that sometimes is applied to marriage, and it does apply, but it has many more applications than that. It was not its original meaning. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. Paul says to us believers, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, what agreement, now notice his language is temple language, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, that I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Now when you hear this, that you are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Does it not give you a sense of the importance of holy living, of conducting yourself as a part of that temple in whom God's Spirit dwells? Turn to 1 Corinthians again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you, and the, the you there is plural, so you individually are a temple and dwelt by the Spirit, you corporately are God's temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. My friends, how this should call us to holiness of life. Do you see the privilege of being a part of that sanctuary that God is building? Do you see the responsibility of living a holy life because you are indwelt by God Himself? We're purchased by the blood. We're indwelt by the Spirit. I don't belong to myself, and neither do you. But then finally, to dwell on the privileges again. 
all of the privileges that we have found here in this text are enumerated for us, are found in Christ, in union with Christ. Remember, 35 times in Ephesians, in Christ or its equivalent. In this section, in Ephesians 2, in verses 13, 18, 21, and 22, there is a reference to union with Christ. Paul knew that only as we understand our position in Christ will we be able to practice Christian living in a way that is congruous to our position. So Paul does not immediately jump into application. You will live as you think. Paul knows that you will live as you think, that the battle for sanctification is in the mind. And for example, if you want to be the kind of father that God wants you to be, as he will stress in chapter 6, the kind of child that you ought to be, as he will stress there, the kind of employee or employer that he wants you to be, if you want your marriage to be what God calls your marriage to be, the kind of husband, the kind of wife that he wants you to be, Paul doesn't start there. That's at the end. You get it? Paul is saying, if you don't know these things, you won't live this way. If you do know these things, if these are the things that control you, then you will understand when we get there what this means and how to live. Don't tell me doctrine's unimportant. Don't tell me that understanding is not important in the Christian life. This epistle is an example of the opposite. So these are the privileges that we have in Christ. Now we have been through two chapters in the book of Ephesians. What are the privileges that have been enumerated for us? We are saints. We are elect. We are adopted. You are redeemed. You are sealed with the Spirit as a down payment. You are made alive in Christ. You are reconciled. You have access. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of God's household. You are an integral part of God's building. You are God's own sanctuary indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Can you, will you steep in these things? These truths are utterly transformative. Dwell on them in the hard things of this world. You know, some Christians go to death for their faith, but nothing removes their position in Christ. We live in spiritual poverty when we are not aware of these things, and these things do not control our thinking and our affections. Now I want to conclude with a magnificent quote from John Calvin. One of the greatest comments that is ever made on union with Christ is found in Calvin's Institutes 2.16.19. Here it is. Listen to it and delight. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength that lies in His dominion, if purity in His conception, 
If gentleness it appears in his birth, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption it lies in his passion, if acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. To which surely all of God's people can say, Amen. Amen.